One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At bluenile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to bluenile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at bluenile.com for $50 off your purchase. bluenile.com code LISTEN. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello and welcome to Streets Ahead, your podcast on all things cycling and walking through the global pandemic. You might have heard of that and beyond. My name is Ned Bolting. I'm Adam Tranter. And I'm Laura Laker. And this week, I'm really pleased to say we branch out and get all international. We have a very uh, special virtual guest all the way from New York City. It's Doug Gordon from The War on Cars. Hello, Doug. Um, Welcome to Streets Ahead. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be on. I think I'm slightly thrilled that we have an international guest. Um, it makes us feel, it makes us feel, um, it, well, it makes me feel extremely glamorous and, um, I feel like we've upped the ante and like, I'm going to be on best podcast behavior. Also, I'm very <laughs> conscious that when I'm talking to and broadcasting with Americans, I, um, I tend to s- suddenly, I feel like I'm turning into Hugh Grant and I, I kind of start to fumble around and sound all charmingly British and, you know, and all that sort you, of thing. You all sound like Hugh Grant to me. I can't, I can't, <laughs> there's no difference in your three voices. Yeah. <laughs> Even you, Laura, it's just an American thing. And I'm always in awe of the way that Americans just have a broadcast voice, which is evidence on your um, extre- extremely slick and professional podcast, which um, in many ways puts us to shame, not least because I know you have a sponsor, which brings in commercial revenue, Adam. Um, <laughs> oh, right. Thanks. <laughs> anyway, listen, today we're going to be comparing and contrasting what uh, the United States of America and New York uh, specifically is doing versus what uh, the UK and London, um, because that's certainly where Laura and, and I know most, um, is doing. And who is better at or, or failing or succeeding uh, most when it comes to active transport? Um, so we'd like to cement uh, what we do in Britain, uh, what we in Britain, I, sh- I should say, like to call the special relationship. Doug, have you ever, <laughs> have you ever been to um, visit us over here on our funny little, uh, yes, funny little many, island? I've been to London many times. I used to, I work in television and uh, I have been on a number of shoots over there for various shows that I've worked on interviewing people and have also then used those as opportunities to see the city, see friends, go to theatre, things like that. Very good. What sort of television, I'm curious now, what sort of television do you work in? So uh, my background is in documentary television production. I've worked for public broadcasting, a show called Nova, which is a science-based show. 
Uh, I've done stuff for the Travel Channel, History Channel, things like that. I'm a writer and producer. That's that's kind of my my day job, or at least has been for a long time. Very cool. Very cool. Like that. Um, uh, so drilling down into sort of what you know best in terms of y- your podcast, um, let's start. Can I just start with a really sort of general question? What's uh, what's the last year been like in New York? Uh, very difficult. Um, as I think it has been just about everywhere. You know, New York was very early on sort of the epicenter of the COVID crisis in the United States. And we were hit very hard. Um, granted that's not, uh, equitably distributed among all neighborhoods. Some neighborhoods were hit very hard, especially where essential workers live, low income people, people of color, my neighborhood, which is a little more privileged, obviously, you know, people left for second homes, people had the space to hunker down and, and work from home. So um, it's been a very trying year as it has been everywhere. We seem to be a little bit on the other side of it as tough as things are still. Um, but, you know, I think if you were to walk around a lot of neighborhoods in New York, you wouldn't really know much is very different except for a lot of mask wearing and a few closed stores. The, the streets are pretty busy outside of the central business district of, you know, Midtown Manhattan, which is still kind of a ghost town. But it's, it's very, it's strange as it is, I think, everywhere. We saw, uh, saw pictures on your Twitter feed and, and, and on various different things about um, plans for New York. I know you've had lots of pop-up um, restaurants uh, on, the, on the streets. Um, there's been some road closures, possibly not, not enough. Um, always have this temptation to think, oh, it seems to be going pretty well over there. Like, I wish we could be more like them. Um, and I, I possibly think that you might, you might feel the same about what's happening in London and rest on the UK. Could you just probably start by telling us the status quo in New York at the moment, how the kind of COVID response related to active travel has happened and how it's been uh, received by you and others, I think. Uh, yeah, I mean, there definitely is a little bit of like the grass is greener on the other side. I look to what is happening in London and I know you all probably have your frustrations with Sadi Khan, um, but we they might pale in comparison to our frustrations with Bill de Blasio. Um, the initial response to COVID as far as active travel and open streets and things like that are concerned was basically no response. The mayor said it wasn't going to work here to shut down streets. There were higher priorities. Even our DOT commissioner at the time, Polly Trottenberg, was using excuses like this is in Paris, which you hear all the time, um, usually at your local community meeting. This is in Amsterdam, things like that. So they initially launched a very small open streets program. And unfortunately, it was very heavily policed because the mayor is really big into police enforcement. And it was very limited in, in size and location. So it wasn't really located in neighborhoods, sort of on the edges of places. And there are only three or four of them. And not surprisingly, um, it was sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Not a whole lot of people showed up. It was too labor intensive. And so after a few weeks, they canceled it. Um, then after more pressure from activists and seeing what other people were doing in other cities, the city did announce that they would be installing 100 miles of open streets. Some of those are still going on. They don't consist of much more than like sawhorse barriers that drivers could easily knock over or, or lift with one arm even. Um, and there are a few like Berry Street in Williamsburg, if, if you're familiar with Brooklyn at all or, or your listeners are, that are a real success and they have 
like community volunteers who come out every day and put the barriers up. There's some on the Lower East Side in Manhattan. There are others that have just disappeared. Um, there was a really successful one on Vanderbilt Avenue near me, which was every weekend, restaurants setting up, people sitting in the median with picnic tables and chairs. And that's disappeared because they said, oh, it's winter and no one will come. But granted, we've had a very mild winter and I think people would. Um, so that's been like, it's been mixed, I would say, here in New York and not without a considerable pressure from activists. So yeah, it's, I look to the London's, you know, I look to London's low traffic neighborhoods and I think those look great, you know, really robust barriers with heavy planters or things like that. We don't have anything of the sort really like that here. Yeah, it's amazing. I was looking at um, how much London has done over um, over the last, well, it started in May. And it's really astonishing when you start to add up the numbers. I live in a low traffic neighbourhood now, which was um, installed in August, I think. And 4% of Londoners now live in a low traffic neighbourhood. And that's the ones that were introduced between May and September. So there's 88 in total. And um yeah, and a huge amount of new or upgraded cycle lanes. We've got like 90 kilometers. I'm not sure what that is in miles, but it really has been just firing on all, on all cylinders to use a, a car term. Um, and maybe not all cylinders, actually. There's some London boroughs that haven't been doing uh, a lot, but across the city, you really see there's a, there's a map that someone's done. They've kind of crowdsourced information from various different places. And when you look at it, there's these purple squares of low traffic neighborhoods and, and you can cycle from quite far northeast of London into the city, city center just through low traffic neighborhoods. And there's a couple of gaps and it really, it's just been happening sort of gradually over the last nine months. And it's, it's astonishing actually. It's hard to keep up at times, but not perfect by any means, but. No, the, the New York ones are not a network in any sense like that. If you wanted to cycle from one open street well into Brooklyn all the way to Manhattan, you wouldn't be able to do it on open streets. Um, there, there, there was no network consideration given to how these might fit together. They were originally pitched as just extra space for neighborhoods that needed them. Um, and even the, we don't really have so much in terms of pop-up cycle lanes. The, the Department of Transportation installed about 26 or 27 miles of protected bike lanes last year. Um, but most of those were proposed before the pandemic. So mm -hmm. they weren't installed with any sense of urgency. We must facilitate cycling to, you know, mm -hmm. to help people who are uncomfortable taking the subway um, or to deal with changing tra traffic patterns. They were just, it was just work that they were going to do anyway, sort of rebranded as a pandemic solution. Mm. Now, that's not to say that the, the lanes they're installing aren't good. They're, they're real, some of them are really important and have helped connect a couple of communities, but um, there was no specific pandemic response as far as cycling is concerned. Is there, um, is there a budget attached to this that, that's kind of, that they said, we're going to go and spend, you know, X million on this, uh, or was it just sort of discretionary? We've got some barriers and some police, we'll, we'll do a bit. There's no pandemic budget that I'm aware of that's dedicated towards active travel or open space in any way. Um, in 2019, we had really one of the worst years New York has seen in a long time for cycling deaths. And there were something like 29, 30, depending on how you count it, um, cycling deaths in the span of the year. And by July of 2019, there had been 15. 
And there was a huge protest in Washington Square Park in Greenwich Village, a die-in. A couple thousand people brought their bicycles and laid down on the, on the floor, on the ground. And that pressured the mayor into announcing what they call the Green Wave Program, which was additional funds, staffing uh, for accelerated cycling infrastructure. Okay, that's fine. But it was sort of like, a good plan for 2015 and not a great plan for 2019. And then the pandemic hit and like every city in America and across the world, budgets were just, you know, wiped out, destroyed, taxes vanished. And um, the green wave program was cut, not a hundred percent, but it was cut down. So you had this program that was put in place in response to cycling desks going up. It got cut down and now uh, we ended 2020 just, I think, with like 25 or 26 cycling deaths. So um, not much improvement. Yeah. Yeah. I guess we've sort of, it hasn't felt like it, but actually in hindsight, it's just listening to that, uh, having a dedicated budget that's been you know, announced and, and, and uh, the money's become available you know, very quickly. And Ned, as you were saying in, in another episode, you know, we're in this kind of bizarre situation or have been in this bizarre situation where the government are practically, you know, paying people's wages. And, and it's kind of a, it's a very unusual economic position um, to be in. Act of Travel has been presented as a, a, a as part of an emergency response. I think that could have been improved in, in parts in the kind of the, you know, the, the importance of it rather than just the urgency. Um, but But yeah, to hear that there's kind of things have been cut because of the pandemic rather than we should be doing more is, 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 yeah, is really, is really disappointing. I think it's easy to forget that we, I mean, we, we were kind of in that situation for a period. There was a, there was a sort of moment of freefall where a lot of the pre-planned stuff in the, in London uh, was under threat and no one was sure it was going to happen because suddenly Transport for London's budget, because um, then they're, they're unusual in global cities and that they're expected to pay for themselves. There's not this kind of a diminishing uh, fund from central government to, to pay for London transport, which is um, very strange. But um, yeah, the, basically the actual travel stuff that was in the pipeline got cut. And then there was this initiative from central government that local councils had to start providing for emergency cycling and walking infrastructure because people had to avoid public transport. And that's where a lot of our money came from. So, um, but a lot of it was this stuff that was already in the pipeline. And I think the successful boroughs in L London's a, a city of 32 boroughs and then the sort of overarching transport authority that runs 5% of the roads and the buses and the tubes. And so it's a bit, it can be a bit of a kind of battle between them. So the boroughs that um, have done well, basically, were the ones that had something in place, maybe a talk to residents about what they wanted. I know that my mind, which is, seems to be fairly successful, they had been talking to residents about, you know, what are the issues that you see here? Uh, put on this map, you know, we've got the common, commonplace map where you can just put a pin down and say, we need a tree here or some speed calming or uh, whatever. And so I think those are the ones that have been kind of successful, the ones that had the chance before the pandemic to do that groundwork. And those schemes have just been uh, accelerated. So it's like, a, a depending on who you talk to, it's six years or a decade's worth of progress in, in like nine months or something. Yeah. In New York, we had a year's worth of progress in one year. So basically, <laughs> it was, it was no. That's, you know, I think it's, it's, it speaks to the New York City philosophy of incrementalism. And Ooh. my big criticism of New York City's current leadership is that it really believes in doing things very slowly and getting buy-in from everybody. Mm. And that has its value in some sense. 
but also when a crisis hits, it's kind of worthless. Um, you know, if you, if you believe in like gradually personally saving money, putting a dollar aside here and there, if some huge crisis comes and you only have $2 in the bank, that incrementalism is not going to save you. It would have been better if you had been saving $100 every week. You know what I mean? Like it, the, the city just found itself straight up against an emergency and a philosophy of incrementalism. And those two things didn't match. So we, we just, we did what we were supposed to do last year and not a whole lot more. I will say, because I'm sure someone from New York City Department of Transportation will be listening to this and say, hey, wait a minute, come on, we've done more than that. The open restaurants program here in New York, which we can talk oh, yeah. about, um, has been a huge, huge success and maybe a model for a lot of other cities, including, including London. But we can talk about that. But yeah, Ned, I think you were going to say something. Oh, I've, I've got about six things banked up in no particular order. <laughs> I mean, just in response to what you just said, Doug, um, there is a, 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 I think quite a lot of value in what you say about, you know, whilst you're, whilst you're kind of bemoaning the inadequacy of an incrementalist response. On the other hand, I mean, Adam and Laura may disagree with me slightly on this, but I have been on the one, you know, quite impressed with the speed of the response from central government and the amount of resources thrown at this problem. But equally, I think there has been a little bit of dogma in London um, that has led to schemes being plonked in, which were not particularly well thought through, and then um, either removed rather too hastily or even um, persisted with in the teeth of really quite well-founded opposition on occasion. And I would, um, I would suggest that the uh, cycle, which is one of the first things that happened, the dedicated cycle lane up the side of Big Avenue in, in central London, Doug Park Avenue, runs alongside Hyde, Hyde Park. I remember in one of our really early episodes, I went and rode a bit of that. And I came to the conclusion that uh, it's just been put in there because they can put it in there. And it doesn't actually solve a problem that wasn't solved quite handily by the cycle track that runs parallel with it in the park in the first place. And it's still there. And it's a source of quite easy, it's quite an easy public relations win for its opponents, you know, um, because it doesn't appear to be terribly well used, if I'm, if I'm perfectly honest. And it doesn't, it doesn't strike me that a route that really needed, whereas there's umpteen other routes that desperately needed something done and they've been ignored because they're slightly more problematic or they pass through a number of different boroughs or, you know, so there's been, there's been a, um, in our haste to be seen to be doing things and spending this money, occasionally we've tripped up, you know, which has been the flip side of the coin that you've just described, Doug. But on the, you asked me what else I wanted to say. And um, it, it kind of ties in, I think, with what you, just, what you might want to talk about with open restaurants. Um, uh, the last time, in fact, the only time I've ever visited New York was 10 years ago, I think, 2010. And, um, oh, wow. and my kids were quite youngish then. And uh, we went and stayed with a friend. And I think the, the High Line was pretty new in 2010, or it's only, only recently been opened. And it blew my mind, right? It was one of the finest bits of kind of urban design I'd ever seen, and probably have ever seen, actually. I thought it was absolutely magnificent. And I wondered whether the presence of the High Line as a symbol of repurposing, um, because it's such a, you know, I think all New Yorkers would be justifiably pretty proud of that. And, and they'd want to show visiting friends and relations the High Line. Um, I wondered whether that is, is, is quite a cultural asset that you've got on your side. You can say, well, this is the kind of thing we can do with a bit of imagination um, and whether that you can draw on the inspiration for that. 
Yeah, the Highline is a really good example. I mean, I, I think for your listeners and maybe some of ours, we should describe that it was um, a, an elevated railway track from a time when that part of New York, the far west side of Manhattan, was manufacturing. The meatpacking district was over there. So those were you know service railway cars that were running back and forth. And it had been abandoned for a long time, for decades, and was overgrown with weeds. And then you know a, a group, a, a public-private partnership, essentially came together and fixed it up and turned it into an elevated linear park. And, uh, you know, I think the reviews of it probably depend on who you're talking to because it has led to a lot of increased development and gentrification, which obviously it's good for the tax base and economy to have bigger buildings and hotels and things like that. But if people can't afford to live there who've been living in the neighborhood, that's not the greatest thing. That being said, on its purely like aesthetic qualities, it is beautiful. It does show, like you're saying, this idea that we have this old infrastructure and we can repurpose it for um, new and different, I won't necessarily say better, but new and different uses that will draw a lot of people to it. I mean, the High Line is kind of the victim of its own success. It's one of those, like, it's so crowded, nobody goes there anymore sort of things. Like, I I would not even consider going there on a a Saturday afternoon. Um, But I have gone early in the morning. I've taken my kids there. It's beautiful. And so, yeah, I do think it can be this symbol of like urban renewal. Um, and that term can be problematic as well. But um, it, it, it shows that like good, smart people can get together and create something beautiful for people. And there's a huge value in, in that, I believe. But I also think, you know, we, we the Department of Transportation put in a cycle lane alongside um, Central Park, which actually was very necessary, even though there is a bike lane, obviously a popular bike route in the park. I think so little tweaks like that, just as you're all aware, show that a different way is possible and cause people to look at their city in a different way. So yes, I think the Highline is probably the the best example of that. Times Square, the plazas that went in in 2009, um, those also just really show that a different a different way of looking at your city is possible. And and tell tell us about the open restaurants because I don't yeah I don't know what you're right. talking about. So you know, like everywhere, we had pretty serious lockdowns and businesses were closed. And um, the restaurant industry in New York is arguably the most important industry we have. Um, everybody knows when you come to New York, you go to the neighborhoods and you get great food, Italian food, Chinese food, Mexican food, whatever it is, and they're all closed. And so the city, in response, um, allowed restaurants to set up under a quick framework that the DOT set up in parking spaces uh, on the sidewalk or the pavement, as you might say. Um, And uh, in my best Hugh Grant voice, I'll say pavement. (laughs) And um, right. And so they, you know, the DOT set up, like I said, a really quick set of guidelines for what spaces qualified and what the structures could look like. And very quickly, um, restaurants, started taking parking, largely on commercial strips. There's some restaurants, obviously, tucked away in, in side streets. Um, and it's been great. So they have, I think, we're up to almost 11,000 restaurants spread out across the five boroughs. Obviously, that's more concentrated in Manhattan, Brooklyn, and Queens than it is in the Bronx and Staten Island. Um, and it's been a real lifeline. It, you know, I don't want to oversell it. These restaurants are still struggling and going from having uh, you know, a restaurant where you could seat 25, 50, 100 people in an hour, as opposed to uh, seating outside where you can seat 10, 
is not going to be the kind of thing that saves them entirely, but it could be enough of a life raft, let's say, to get them to shore uh, on the other side of this pandemic. The good news is, is that our mayor, as much as he is seen as a sort of motorhead, drive everywhere sort of guy, has said that these restaurants and the open restaurants can stay post-pandemic. So even though the initial need for them will be gone, um, the, the motivating need for them, they will stay. So, you know, I, I walked around my neighborhood. We, I happen to live along one where they do close the street um, every weekend. And I looked at my wife and I said, it's, it's like we just moved to Montreal or Paris. Like <laughs> it's just sidewalk cafes everywhere. Um, it, it's a completely different experience and, uh, and it's fun. And it, it involves lots of people sitting and eating who never in a million years would know that they normally would have to go to a community board meeting or call their local city council person to get this space. But the, the pandemic made it possible. That's such a good idea. Open, I'm closing the streets just at weekends. Have we got, have we got anything, have we got anything like that, Laura, Adam? That, I mean, it seems to be either closed or open or, I mean. Uh, Bristol did it for a while. There were a couple of streets in Bristol where they would do like one Sunday a month or something. I'm not sure if they still do. I think that was under the last mayor of Bristol, but um, that's yeah. in the southwest of England. If you, if you look at a lot of, um, a lot of successful cycling movements, uh, Bogota um, in Amsterdam, they all started with what like known as like cycling Sundays, right. uh, I guess. So it's easy. Like my temptation is to, you know, is to d not dismiss it, but sort of say, Oh, well, we, you know, we need to be thinking now for the future of, you know, the way we want to be and not compromise. But actually I think Ned, you're very right there. Like uh, having, showing people like a taste of what they, what they could get, I think is, um, it, you know, is, is really useful. And I just wonder, uh, Doug, whether, um, this, this, um, this new, this new movement of restaurants kind of coming into the, the street area has helped uh, in your view has helped the, the kind of the movement, uh, I, I guess, because a lot of complaints would be from when, when a bike lane comes in or, or whatever would be, Oh, well you can't rip out the parking because my, my business won't exist next week uh, or whatever. And now these same businesses are probably now using this parking removal to great benefit. Do you think they have now seen the light and they are converted or do you think, you know, they're, they're making the best of a very bad situation and they'd prefer parking if they could. It's probably a little bit of both. I think that when this ends, you'll probably see some restaurants just go back to fully indoors and they'll get rid of their outdoor structures because they're not easy to maintain. They're probably expensive. They have to worry about when it does snow, what's going to happen, things like that. I think some will say, we lost a lot of money during the pandemic. We should keep this up and expand our footprint. And, you know, now we can go back to seating 50 people inside plus 10 people outside. And that's a good way for us to make up for lost revenue. Other people will say, yeah, it's just really pleasant. It's great. I mean, the other nice thing is I talked to a restaurant near us, a Mexican place, and I asked them how it was going. They've moved fully outdoors. They're doing takeaway and their little outdoor dining space. And they said actually that revenue is up because um, they're able to process more orders. Um, and in a more intangible way, they said the outdoor space in front of the restaurant is a better advertisement for their restaurant than someone walking by and maybe peeking through the window and looking in and saying, oh, that looks mm. nice. I'll go in there. So I, I think, um, you know, it, look, this is the United States and capitalism drives almost everything. So like, we couldn't get people to give up parking if it meant people not dying in cycling crashes. We couldn't 
do it if it meant like kids being able to cross the street to go to school or the park by themselves. But we could do it to save restaurants and save <laughs> jobs and, uh, you know, make of that what you will. But if, if that is what it has taken to show people that there's a different way to use our streets, like I'm, I'm not going to complain about it for now. So, yeah. Um, yeah, we'll see. Yeah, this is something that Milan was doing. Um, I think one, one of the first global cities to start doing uh, the Plaza Aperte or the Strada Aperte, the open streets and open plazas program. And it was it was one of the primary drivers was the fact that these restaurants that are now no longer able to serve customers are suddenly going to need a lot more space than they had before. And also an amazing thing is that um, that, that was helped by your former transportation commissioner, Jeanette Steve Khan with NACTO. So she she did this program in New York 10 years ago. You talked about Times Square. That was her, wasn't it? And um, and she was a a big advocate. This her thing was let's try it, let's use temporary cheap interventions and see. And and it's quite interesting to hear that now New York has kind of gone back to the way it was, and London's maybe now at the point where we're sort of trying things on a very temporary basis. I remember when our I guess our equivalent of Jeanette Sadiq Khan, Will Norman, our cycling and walking commissioner, first came into the role and I interviewed him for The Guardian and I and I asked him about temporary measures because Jeanette Sadiq Khan was at the same conference and uh, he, he wasn't that keen on the idea actually at the time and he thought, you know, it's better to you know, to go through the process of consulting. And I think this, um, we're hoping to speak to him soon, actually, but um, I think this process of um, realizing the urgent need for change has has changed his mind and has shown to a lot of people that actually trialing stuff has a huge benefit in terms of allowing people to see things differently and and to give it a, a tweak it if they need to change things up, maybe remove it, maybe change the area that you're doing. Um, but yeah, that all came from Jeanette Sadiq Khan. And it's like, I guess, I guess there's a risk in London as well. Now that a lot of people are saying, but well, we weren't told about these changes. What, you know, where's that, where do we get our say that, you know, we're probably going to kind of roll back on some of the, emer- it's not going to be an emergency response anymore. It's going to be more of a sort of long-term thing. And we're going to get to the point where we're talking, going to need to talk to people more. Cities are going to need to talk to people more about what they want and how they want to do it. And I guess there's a risk that you know you kind of just go back to the old way where you consult forever and then nothing actually changes because someone's afraid of of something uh something different happening on the streets yeah i think that and this is not an original idea that i came up with but there's there's the sense or the theory that the project is the process and the process is the project that doesn't mean that you steamroll over communities and just roll in and drop something down without yeah. talking to people ahead of exactly. time. Yeah. But there gets to be diminishing returns when you're in a, you know, in our case, our meetings are often held in high school cafeterias and church basements. And it's like 12 people in a room screaming at each other over losing parking. And then the only people who show up and support are people like me who are pegged as advocates who are, you know, in the no types who have an agenda. And, you know, if you could just go outside and like put down some cones and see, well, you know, the trucks will still be able to get through if we do this. And look, people who didn't even know that this was happening are now sitting on that bench that we just put down temporarily. And that was Jeanette's great innovation, right? They closed Times Square to traffic with some orange barrels. And I and very famously, <laughs> she um, instructed essentially all of her staff that was with her that day to run to the nearest hardware store and buy every beach chair that they could find (laughs) and put them down 
in Times Square so that people had a place to sit that wasn't the curb. And um, the minute those things went in, people just mm-hmm. took to them. They didn't say like, wow, this wasn't here yesterday. What's this weird thing? They just did it. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think, you know, I'm glad, you know, you guys, I think, are talk about the grass is always greener. I think you guys are lucky to have someone like Will Norman, who is out there advocating and, and has a very public profile. Um, we were very lucky to have Jeanette, who was out there advocating and had a very public profile. In terms of uh, consultation, um, I've listened to some of your episodes where you talk about those kind of community hall meetings. And um, yeah, it's normally, say, like 12 people and, and they, they you know have a huge um, agenda. And it's always about what they'll lose rather than what they'll gain. Um, we've noticed, and I, we want to talk about low traffic neighborhoods as, as, as kind of a concept here as well. Um, but we found that, well, my take on it is before when you know a decade's worth of progress wasn't happening in a year and we were just kind of plodding along cycling was seen as a you know a thing we should do because it's good but you know like let's make sure it doesn't really get too much in the way of of anything else and let's not upset anybody and it would often be a compromise agreement you know to do something good um where where we're at now is cycling's kind of been and walking has been kind of put front and center uh, and and very clearly kind of you know a change in in policy and there's funding and it's happening at a pace that it never has done. So what what we found is that people, you know, the, the the amount of scrutiny and interest in these concepts has also skyrocketed. So you have uh, national several national newspapers and the US favorite Nigel Farage, uh, like also <laughs> also now hates bike lanes. Uh, that's his thing at the moment. Um, so so like all these people are suddenly now. Um, like on this agenda when they just didn't care or didn't even know about it before. Um, and I, uh, and that's kind of, you know, that's been quite weird to, to, to follow. I just, um, I wonder, cause you've been following it from, from, from your side of the pond as well, like what you make of all of this and the kind of bike clash. Uh, and I guess your own experience with some of the major projects like times closing times square is, is not an insignificant thing to do. Uh, and I know from reading Jeanette Deke Khan's book, you know, there was a lot of people opposed to that as well. So yeah. What do you think of what, what's happening and, and your experience? Yeah, it's funny. I would, that if I had to ask you all one question, I think like, it, or host you solely on our podcast, I, I would devote the entire episode to what I am seeing as the freak out over the low traffic neighborhoods and some of the cycle lanes <laughs> that have gone in, because it does seem like the bike lash that we experienced in New York in like 2010, 2011, but turbocharged. I mean, you know, New York, I think what New York and London have in common is a very intense tabloid culture. Um, And London's maybe more intense, I think really actually is more intense than New York's. Um, But, you know, we have the New York Post, Rupert Murdoch owned newspaper, and they love to go for the culture war stuff and, and cycling. And those cyclists is a really safe culture war, right? Like you don't have to be racist. You don't have to say it's, it's, other people from other countries coming in, taking your jobs. You can just say it's weird looking hipsters in uh, on fixies or the spandex crowd uh, coming into your <laughs> neighborhood and terrorizing it. So it's, it's like a very safe cultural war topic for them to exploit for outrage clicks. Um, so I've been watching this from afar. Uh, obviously, I follow all of you guys and have listened to the podcast. And uh, it's like I said, it, it sort of makes what we went through when I first started getting involved in bike advocacy looked like a walk in the park. Um, you know, we, when they closed times square, 
uh, I'll, I'll roll it back a little bit. I got involved in cycling advocacy in New York City. I'd always been interested in cycling and always been doing it for, for recreation, a little bit for transportation. I started my blog, Brooklyn Spoke, in 2010 at about the exact same time that the city installed a bike lane on Prospect Park West, which Jeanette talks about in her book as well. And that was really heated. It was a lot of you know older, wealthier, white residents of the neighborhood coming out against this project to take a three-lane road and turn it down to two lanes and, and take the extra space for a protected two-way bike lane. And it was, it was intense. I mean, you had um, weekly tabloid stories. You had the cover of New York Magazine. You had columnists calling for Jeanette's head, um, all this kind of stuff. And it took a lot of organization and motivation on the parts of advocates to really fight back. And then it died down. Uh, you know, people started using it. And today, 10 years later, if someone moved into the neighborhood and you told them the story of what happened, they would think you were mad. They would, they would just think like, are people objected to as a kid rides by on his bike, like to that, they objected to that. And yes, they did. Um, so, you know, I, I take comfort or if I can offer comfort to your listeners, it's that these things do pass. You need to have politicians who will see them through and, and not cave. Um, like you said, Adam, you know, it, people who have something to lose are really motivated to come out. People who have something to gain aren't because they don't know they have anything to gain. Like you can't organize the residents of a building that hasn't been built yet, but you can organize the residents of the neighboring buildings at the vacant lot where the building is going to go up. And that's sort of how I see um, cycling advocacy. It's, it's very hard to convince people to come out to rally for something they don't yet know they will benefit from. Um, and so take comfort, Londoners. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, will, it will get better. Um, you just have to kind of like push and push and push and not have people who are going to cave at the first sign of, of controversy. Um, there's, there's been some quite nice kind of developments here in London because there has been I was talking to uh, Simon Monk from the London Cycling Campaign and they've been instrumental in a lot of changes that have happened in in London in the last decade and arguably that's now that's now kind of spreading nationally now that our former mayor Boris Johnson is now our prime minister um but this the kind of sense I get there is that um is that it's kind of given councillors who do want to do something the opportunity to make a difference because these are people who went into politics to make a difference, to change something positive for their communities. And they're not well paid. They often get a lot of uh, shouting uh, from people for various things. And uh, I think there's his sense is that there's been a kind of fear of, of doing anything because, you know, if you put a cycle lane in, it'll be uh, death of the high street. You know, don't take away people's parking. Our former cycling commissioner, Andrew Gilligan, called it the third rail of, trans- of transport. Yeah, t- touch it and you die because it's, it's just that kind of precious and this is the same story the world over but i think that having this impetus of the virus and this urgent need to change stuff has really given those people who want to make a difference in their communities the kind of 
chance to do that. And this is the only money that there is at the moment for, for transport is, is in cycling in, in London at the moment. So uh, even outer London boroughs that I, I wasn't even aware had, were doing stuff, but he was telling me that um, that really kind of non-cycling places have ju- are just going to town on, on bike stuff at the moment. And there's been a really nice camaraderie between the boroughs where they've kind of been the more experienced ones have been mentoring the ones who are just kind of coming through. And there's this real sort of sense of community within the different councils. So I don't know, there's definitely a a kind of positive story, even though we do have this tabloid uh, narrative and there seems to be a sort of a bit of a, a Venn diagram crossover between um, kind of Brexity people and oh, perhaps Laura. even oh, <laughs> <Laura>. <laughs> is that right? Is that wrong to say that? I mean, we've certainly got Farage and we've got the Daily Mail, um, so I don't know. I think is the difference bad? here in New York, though, is that like <laughs> in in New York, um, and we talked about this on an episode of the podcast, is that one of the most interesting things is that opposition to cycle lanes um, is bipartisan, and in fact, in um, some of like my neighborhood, Park Slope, is arguably like the most stereotypical progressive neighborhood in the city, if not the country outside of, you know, Berkeley, California, or, you know, Cambridge, Massachusetts. And uh, my co-host Aaron Navrasek, you know, make ask this question, why is it that the most progressive, most liberal people tend to be, be the most vocal about fighting this stuff? So we do have our right wing opposition to cycle lanes and we do have that conservative bent where people just say no. Um, but the, the opposition in Prospect Park West was the wife of Senator Chuck Schumer, uh, the dean of a dean at Brooklyn College. So like a you know, liberal academic, a former uh, sanitation commissioner who had worked under a couple of mayors like this was like the the Democratic uh, elite, essentially. And these are people who probably have like no fracking bumper stickers on their cars. Right. <laughs> so, um, so it's, it's, yeah. it's a weird thing. It's, it's, it's a bipartisan mm. effort to destroy cycling efforts in New York. Yeah, I perhaps shouldn't suggest that it was that it's kind of one one political affiliation or another. It's just, <laughs> I mean, yeah. <laughs> um, the um, it sounds a bit like uh, it sounds a little bit like Chiswick High Road at the moment, um, where there's a new cycle lane in a in a um, uh, you know a pretty wealthy neighbourhood that. Um, there's always there's this brilliant video of the local councillors uh, at the side of the road saying that a cycle lane would spoil spoil the village like feeling, and they're having to talk over the buses and no one can hear them. <laughs> um, and, uh, uh, and and but that's gone that's gone in now, and, and the local church, you know, like I think you know, full of good Samaritans, like good people in the neighbourhood, you know, were, were encouraged to to pray that the cycle lane would be removed, and and like all, all this kind of like stuff that, that just seemed out of, uh, out of character. And yeah, I think it is tempting to talk about, uh, you know, certain politics, but there, there, there does seem to be this, even in the most, uh, you know, intellectual and well-educated of forums, like some fairly weird stuff happens, like saying that bike lanes cause congestion and, and things like that. Like, I think it's counterintuitive sometimes, isn't it, transport? I think it's easy for us to understand that um, if you give people options, then they'll then they'll kind of choose different things. But at the moment, quite often, the only option is to drive. And and yeah, I totally understand that. I grew up in the countryside, and everyone learned to drive as soon as they could because otherwise, you just can't get anywhere. But 
I think I think uh, you know we know that people people will do different things if if there are options, but not not everyone does. It would seem like oh, this is the given amount of traffic on the road. If you make the road narrow, then everything's going to get worse. But, but yeah, it's just explaining that in a way to people. Exactly. I mean, to, to be fair to to be fair here, these are quite I think these are quite complicated issues to grapple yeah. with and, and quite complicated conclusions to reach, and it does require a being led through a thought process to get from A to B. You know, in some ways it really mm. reminded me of, and, and you know, l- let's face it, uh, even though we've got millions of listeners worldwide, Streets Ahead is a fairly niche interest <laughs> in, the, in, the grand, in the grand scheme of things. You know, there's a podcast for everything. You know, what do we know about Spanish, <laughs> m- m- you know, m- uh, maritime history of the 18th century? I'm sure there's a podcast where people will make all sorts of assumptions that everybody's interested in Spanish maritime history of the 18th century. But actually, not that many people are really grappling with this subject matter. And it reminds me, it reminds me a little bit of um, the, the kind of light bulb moment that I had years ago when I was out running with Chris Boardman. And, and Chris said, um, and he, he talked to me for the first time about um, why you should never make wearing helmets compulsory. And I went, what are you talking about, you idiot? Mm, How can you say that? What a stupid, what? And it took me five kilometers of running at a very slow pace and just listening to what he said to actually understand. And even then I didn't really understand. And it took, probably took me six months before I actually understood, you know, and now, and now I argue with anyone about it because he's right. Um, but the, I think, I think you shouldn't underestimate quite how thorny these issues are and how easy it mm. is to, and can I make one other point? And I'd be interested to hear Doug, Doug's position on this as well. I think if we archive today's podcast and fast forward 10 years and listen back to it, uh, there's a risk that we'll all be going, why were we talking about cycling all the time? Because um, cycling is, uh, uh, we, we did an episode of, of, of a couple of months ago, a month, a month or so ago about e-scooters. And I, I'm beginning to think more and more that um, the, 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 there'll always be people who want to cycle. And, that's, uh, and I, I will always be one of them. I firmly believe that that's a great thing. But I think we're just on the cusp of a, a massive um, revolution in non-car, you know, broadly active, certainly much cleaner and sustainable travel solutions. And I think the bike will just be one very small one of them pretty soon. And also, wrapping into it as well, for every one person on a bike in either New York or London, there's a thousand people walking. And those are the people um, who aren't in cars and aren't on bikes that we need to wrap into this conversation increasingly as well, because much as I, I am a cycling fan and a commentator and everything, it, it's only a very small part of the picture, isn't it? Potentially, Doug. Yeah, I, I think, and New York is primarily a walking city more than anything else. Um, and so, in that sense, you even have pedestrians who sometimes say, "Oh, this cycling doesn't make sense. You either walk, or you take the subway, or you take a taxi." They don't even see cycling as fitting into the transportation ecosystem, in a sense. And, um, you know, I do agree. I think to personalize it, my advocacy started through cycling. I was biking to work. I was biking around the neighborhood and every once in a while I'd see a new bike lane and wonder how it got there. And I you know, started reading Streets Blog and I became involved with our advocacy organizations. And so I came to it through cycling, which I think a lot of people do come to Safe Streets advocacy through cycling. But then if you're you know, being smart about it, you, you start to see how this thing fits into better transportation, better walking, how a protected bike lane isn't just for me, the cyclist, it's for you, the, the pedestrian to get the cyclist off the sidewalk to slow down the cars, things like that. So 
Um, I do agree. I think we have to do a better job at communicating how these things, it's about convenience and safety. It's not about any one particular mode. I think that's, that's what we need to be better at communicating. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with you, Ned. I think, um, I, I think it's, it's kind of, it's very tough, isn't it? Because, um, you know, cycling when prioritized and taken seriously, um, can be, you know, and is hugely effective. Uh, if you look at, um, Amsterdam, you know, people cycle and see cycling as fast walking, you know, because walking doesn't quite cut it. And actually I've cycled in Amsterdam and places that are really hostile towards pedestrians. I think I agree with you about cycling, especially like talking more holistically about what people stand to gain. I actually think that residents or local communities, wherever, you know, everyone comes into this wanting the right things for their, for their communities. And, and as I said before, like no one goes to like, they can see what good looks like. No one goes to Amsterdam and said, Oh, I had a great time, but I wish there was like more cars and everything. Around <laughs> there. You know, no, one, no, one, no one, no one says that they know what good looks like, but it's about like positioning it as being possible as a holistic set of measures, which is why I think the super blocks in, in Spain and things like that, like look really interesting because yes, they help cycling, but yeah, like there's a massive, there's a massive hopscotch in the middle of the, 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 the crossroads and the seats for elderly people to, to chill and, well, um, and whatnot. What do, what do we think about um, Hidalgo, Mayor Hidalgo's latest plans in Paris? You know, I mean, her revolution there, and it's nothing short of a revolution in some senses, is um, showing no signs of letting up, is it? You know, the, the, yeah, it's amazing. The, 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 the greening, really of, incredible. The greening of the Arc de Triomphe and the Etoile and the Champs-Élysées and all the... Um, all the area around there, if they pull that off, that's, um, that's huge because the Champs-Élysées that it, it, where I end up working once a year, every year, um, is, uh, and the French love to refer to as the, the most beautiful avenue in the world. It's not even up for discussion. It's just, that's, that's a fact. It's actually a bit of a, is a bit of a crap hole. Um, when the Tour de, <laughs> when the Tour de France isn't on it, it's just a cobbled motorway. Yeah. You know, it's kind of like 16 lanes wide. Um, and, um, so actually, you know, maybe this is a listen. This is coming towards the end of this podcast now. I know, and and but I think for for all of us, Doug um, and London, you know, London, New York, we need to look to Paris, don't we? Because um, they're really setting the pace. I think here. Yeah, I mean, I look to Paris, obviously, and and it shows the value of really great leadership under their mayor, and she has certainly spent a long time planting the seeds for what she's now really allowing to blossom. Um, you know, I think the nice thing is that. New York, London, and Paris, we see each other as peers and we have a lot that we can learn from each other. And, and so when people say, you know, here in New York, people will say, oh no, this isn't London. We couldn't put that in here. Or this isn't Paris. We couldn't put that in here. I'm like, have you walked around London? I mean, the, you know, I, the, the streets are not on a grid. Everything is very compact. Like in many ways, I'm sure people in London are envious of what we might be able to do in New York because our streets are on a grid. The avenues are very wide. We have lots of space to put in, quote unquote, extra things like bike lanes. And, and so that kind of gets back to that grass is always greener thing. You know, we have people here complaining about the historic nature of our neighborhoods and a bike lane is going to ruin them. I'm like, are, are you kidding? Have you seen what Anne Hidalgo did on Rue de Rivoli? Like, you know, it's, it's Paris is a much older city than New York is and London, a much older city than New York as well. Um, no, no one would say that we can't do what London and Paris are doing. So I, I like the spirit of friendly competition. Um, and if we can lean into that a bit more, it might help. Mm. In terms of leadership, Doug, um, obviously Anna Hidalgo has been, um, yeah, been instrumental, 
our, our own uh, Prime Minister Boris Johnson has unquestionably, regardless of your politics, pushed cycling um, and, and walking way more than than any other leader in um, in recent years. Um, what does uh, Joe Biden's um, presidential success mean for um, for transportation and cycling? And I know that he's just appointed a a new fairly young Secretary of Transportation. Uh, are you hopeful that this will be, uh, I mean, we had Tour de Trump, so that <laughs> yeah. was the thing. Yeah. But um, uh, other than that, uh, I don't sense it was very helpful. Do you think Joe Biden uh, could be more helpful? Well, he'll certainly be helpful in rescuing transit systems around the country that have been hit really hard by the pandemic. Um, they just passed a, a big relief package at the end of last year to um, bail out a lot of tra transit systems. That was a much needed lifeline. And it seems very clear that Biden in a new round of relief will give even more that will really help transit systems avoid service cuts, um, whether that's New York City, which would really see the biggest brunt because we're the biggest and most active transit system in the country, or even small little places, you know, Cincinnati that has a growing bus network or things like that. Like, hopefully they'll be able to maintain service for the people who need it. So that is a huge thing. I, you know, I think one of the big differences here in the U.S., and we, we've talked about this on the podcast, is that our mayors actually don't have as much control as an Anne Hidalgo does. You know, our transit system, the Metropolitan Transit Authority that runs the subways, the buses and the commuter rails is run by the governor of New York, not the mayor of New York, even though it primarily services the city of New York. And so, you know, de Blasio can fix the streets and make a bus lane, but he doesn't maintain the subways. He doesn't control them. He doesn't deal with the schedule. So that federal state and local split will be, I think, a thing that's going to be a, an interesting thing to watch in the next little while. But just the bailout money alone for transit is going to save a lot of people from switching to cars. So I think that's really, that's key. So it's so hugely important. I mean, not least of all for the total disintegration of our society that Trump wasn't reelected, but for the preservation of transit. Um, it's been a good, it's been a good thing. Well, um, it's been fascinating. It's been, fa yeah. how is, how is um, Doug just kind of, you know, parking, if that's not the wrong word to use, but parking active travel just for a second. How is it in the United States of America right now? <laughs> Do you mean park it, car parking or like? Well, like, just parking the issue, putting it to one side and just yes. asking a slightly more general question. Oh, okay. I thought it was, you know, we're talking on a transit podcast. No, I thought, I'm just kind of like. You have time for a whole parking episode? We should do it. But uh, yes. I mean, it was, uh, yeah, well, maybe, maybe. Uh, because we've been watching on uh, uh, in um, uh, absolute disbelief, I think, uh, uh, kind of recent yeah. events. Uh, it's just been shocking. But I yeah. mean, how's, how, how is the, the national mood? So, I mean, given the, the extraordinary events um, that we've been watching on from the other side of the pond, that none of us have ever seen the likes, but actually living through it must be um, just bizarre, Doug, and, and a little bit frightening, I would imagine. Yeah, I've never seen anything like it in my 46 years living and breathing in the United States. Um, it is scary. It is a little weird being in New York because you can be somewhat removed from some of these discussions. Not that we didn't have, mm. you know, police beating up Black Lives Matter protesters this summer. And, and that in and of itself was scary and, and tough to watch. But um, yeah, we are definitely at a precipice right now. It's hard to say the next two years are going to be really key. And I think the the what we need to do here in the States is just shore up democracy and protect it from, you know, 
this from happening again and and holding the people who did this accountable, not just the actual people who stormed the Capitol, but you know, possibly elected officials who were in on it and encouraged it at the very least. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's hard. It's really hard. I, I will say it does make being a bike advocate, you know, I'll put my fingers up around that because it just seems so trivial in, in compared to all of that. But mm-hmm. I will say, I guess maybe as a word of encouragement to myself and perhaps to your listeners and, and ours, um, I can't fix the constitutional crisis in America. I cannot restore democracy by myself, but I can help make my streets a little safer, which foster community, which foster connection. And those things, those actions are going to be really important and they will build up hopefully to fixing all of this. Like if all 300 million Americans pick something good to work on, we'll be okay. It's going to be tough, but we'll be okay. That's brilliant. And really good to hear and absolutely bang on, isn't it? You can either, you've got a choice now. You know, the issues that face us are not so very different in, in lots of ways, Doug. And first and mm-hmm. foremost, it's the pandemic, but also the, the threats to democracy from one way and another and the way the national discourse is. And you've got a choice, haven't you? You can either, you can either um, spend the next few years and months of your life banging out angry tweets or you can actually, um, you can actually try and affect what's happening outside your front door. In, in as small a way as possible, but actually be, be part of change and um, be part of something achievable, however modest that may seem. And that's how, that's how you're going to kind of keep the, um, keep the grassroots of democracy actually kind of like, keep, you know, keep them rooted into the earth in, in, in these really testing times. So I think it's quite inspirational. And I think your podcast yeah. is part of that. And may I say, may I say, having begun this um, very interesting chat with you, Doug, sort of uh, paying respect to your, the professionalism of your production values and everything. And um, I actually had a look at your website as well. And I would urge, um, I would urge our listenership to go onto the uh, War and Cars website and click on the store because you sell mugs and t-shirts. Oh, yeah, they're very popular. You have got they're some very great popular. Um, I, would not, wow. I would not advise that you wear a War on Cars t-shirt to your community meeting about no, a bike thing. No, maybe not. Maybe you should. I, I don't. I won't tell you what to do. But they are very popular. Um, yeah, no, that's a really appreciative thing. You know, I, we, we briefly talked about this before we were recording. And I was saying the reason I, I've listened to you guys, I, I value the type of work that you do that we're all doing because... This issue needs people who can communicate well. And you talked earlier, Laura and Ed, about how some of this stuff is so counterintuitive and hard to explain. So doing a podcast like this and having people on who um, can explain cargo biking or whatever it is, is really valuable so that regular folks can go out there and explain to their communities why this is important. Here, here. So listen, thanks, Doug. Take care of yourself and thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks to you three. I appreciate it. Good luck with everything you do. So The War on Cars is Doug's highly rated podcast. Um, You, rather disappointingly though, haven't been listening to it. You've been listening to Streets Ahead instead. Um, Let us know what what you think. Um, Don't compare the two podcasts directly, but do let us know what you think. At Pod Streets Ahead is our handle. Rate us, leave us a nice review and remember to share this podcast far and wide. And finally, wherever you're listening, we appreciate you. And until next time. Bye. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.